Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. On this episode, we are on with Mercedes Himmons. Uh, Mercedes is a previous guest uh, on our roundtable discussion about race and athletic training. So we follow up on some more specific things about inclusion in athletic training. Uh, Mercedes has some excellent insight into uh, that topic. We also talk uh, quite a bit about Mercedes' pursuit of her doctoral degree and how she should be wrapping it up. And by the time this is now getting out... Uh, she should be pretty close to done, so she was very excited about that, but we got into her dissertation and the process of that, and just really the impact that that is going to have, and her potential new line of research going forward with that. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. Please give them a look as you're getting everything ready for your budget, if your budget so allows this year in the craziness that is COVID. But without further ado, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. We are on with Mercedes Himmons, who was part of our round table on um, race discussion in athletic training. Uh, that was episode 47 or 48, I believe. Um, I'll have to, we'll link it up. But anyway, um, we wanted to have her back to A, continue some of that conversation and just Mercedes' um, perspective on it, which I think um, from just our back and forth will be very informative and I'm looking forward to hearing that and then also um, just getting into some topics around athletic training as kind of is the point of the podcast and really looking at PhDs versus DATs and some of the different things there but before I keep rambling I will turn it over to her to um, just fill in a little bit more background from the last time uh, that we talked. Okay Uh, as you said my name is Mercedes Hemmings and I'm born and raised uh, from Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, which I learned there's a Philadelphia, I think, Missouri, or one of those states. Um, so I am from Philly. Um, I chose to go to California University of Pennsylvania, which is on the other side of the state, opposite Philly, um, in a small town called California, Pennsylvania, which I had no clue about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is a whole new world in little southwestern PA. Um, but I thought it was very interesting because at the time, um, I believe the program was nationally ranked in terms of quality and, you know, faculty and all that. So I chose to go there. Um, I did my master's completely online through Cal um, while I took a year off from athletic training. Um because I, I feel like I really got burnt out from undergrad, which is a whole topic in itself. Um, and I was also working for my fraternity, which is a national honor fraternity. And I was traveling across the country to 17 different schools. So I got, you know, the background there, working with people, um, leadership, diversity, all those good things. And then I got back into athletic training and I've been in, the middle school setting, the high school setting, and the collegiate setting. And currently, I am back at my alma mater at Cal U as one of the assistant athletic trainers and clinical instructors. And I work primarily with women's soccer and women's basketball. Okay. And working on my PhD. Hopefully, at the end right now. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, your tweet about 27,000 plus words or something um, about that and I can only look forward to such immense amount of words yeah um, oh my goodness <laughs> so one thing I thought was interesting and in just our back and forth and um, just when we were kind of talking about your experience with race and potential racism just within the profession and you had mentioned and please correct me if I'm wrong that you really said you didn't feel like you had experienced much of that um in your time as a athletic trainer and uh, i've never been to california pennsylvania but i'm just based on what you were saying it has to be a very stark contrast to um philadelphia but um 
it just kind of wanted to go in a little bit of that and again just try and like, for me and just for everybody else like listen and trying to understand things and then really getting into the conversation of you know actions that can be done to contribute to a feeling of inclusion for everybody right um so yes cal pa is a very small town um compared to philly where you know i felt i was a little fish in a big pond where I got the complete opposite. Um, I wanted that kind of small vibe, that homey feel mm -hmm. um, for my undergrad education. And, you know, I visited Cal at the end of my junior year of high school and it just, I fell in love. It was, you know, a very small campus. At the time, it was under construction. Um, and I feel that a lot of it was under construction throughout my entire time there. But now it's, you know, a very beautiful campus. And a lot of people will say that. Um, the I personally feel the diversity wasn't as large as it is now. But, you know, I had my athletic training family as well as my non-athletic training family because I really wanted to make it a point of having friends outside of athletic training um, mm -hmm. because we do spend so much time <laughs> in our major with our classmates, with our faculty. So um, it was important to me to kind of find that outside of athletic training. So, you know, I had black friends on campus that were not in athletic training. Um, I was the only black person in my program or in my class um i think there was maybe one in each class um but i don't think that was a racial kind of issue it just was i personally don't feel that athletic training is prevalent as a profession in the black community um, because we don't know much about athletic training and what is known about athletic training is oh you have to do a lot of hours for not a lot of pay <laughs> and you know you see the glory but you don't see all the work that we do um so i did feel very included in my program and on my campus uh i will say that i mean i have my own issues with policing um growing up in the inner city in Philadelphia. So that's, you know, a separate issue. But I did feel that some of the public safety officers did not exactly make me feel safe. Um, I think there were a few instances where racial profiling was a thing, but I kind of just viewed it as this is the norm and this is what I expected going to middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Um, so that was really my experience. And then as a student, you know, my faculty, they included me, they pushed me. Um, at one point I did go on academic probation because I fell below the GPA requirement, but I don't feel that anyone shunned me for that. They really encouraged me through it and I was able to continue within the program. Um, and a lot of my faculty members have been great mentors um, throughout my career as a student and as a professional. Um, so I, I will say I feel that I've been fortunate in that aspect. And I don't think I've had any racial issues or racism issues um, practicing now. Um, my, let's say my work environment is inclusive where we all try to include everyone, whether you're a student, faculty member, um, or a student athlete. I feel that we kind of work to build that environment. Um, but going off of that, I am the only black person on staff. So it's not my responsibility to kind of be the representation, but I have personally taken that on where, mm -hmm. you know, I do feel that I am a good role model for the student athletes and for the students to say you know i came from not an affluent background and look where i am now so on um, you know the actions to contribute to inclusion or that feeling of inclusion and i've tried to figure out how to best ask this question in my head over and over so I, I will do my best and hopefully it comes out as something clear is uh -huh. you know 
not, you know, and I've said this on the last one, being basically the definition of privilege in myself. Like, and I, I'm, I under, I'm aware of that. I don't, can't say I completely understand it yet because I don't think that's something you always have to work on. But, you know, I'm definitely aware of it. Like, did, they, did everybody kind of, you know, treat you as that equal? And that was what you were looking for? Because I would think as just a person, you know, special treatment may not be what everybody's looking for. You know, right. or, or perceive special treatment, whatever that may be. And so that would always be something for me, I would be try to be aware of where, yes, like this has to be identified and that there are certain things that are not the same, no matter what we pretend them to be, but also not wanting to offend somebody by, you know, giving them the special treatment, which then they may not actually want. And so I guess what I'm trying to get to is, you know, is there a, from your point of view, a best way to potentially go about that? Or is it very individual, which is also obviously very, very possible? Right. Um, I think it can be individual where, you know, at no point that I think anyone gave me special treatment because right. I was the only black student or because I was the only black person on staff. Um, I have been very fortunate to have, you know, clinical experiences as a student where, you know, I was the black student and I was also working alongside with a white student and I never felt that the white student was given preferential treatment over me or I was, you know, given any sort of like extra pushes um, because I'm a black student. Uh, And then as a professional, you know, I've always, I am a leader within my community so i think my opinion is viewed as important so people want to hear what i have to say as well as i take it upon myself to situate myself in the in environment so i could say you know maybe we need to take this look to make sure that we are not coming off as you know excluding anyone sure. um and then I have had situations where, you know, my coworkers come to me to ask for specific perspectives where, you know, I really value that. And they know that they're not racist and they're not, you know, anti-Black or whatever, but they want to make sure that it's coming off the right way. Um, and I value that. And I really think it takes a strong person to be able to, you know, recognize that maybe I only have a one-sided view of everything. So Mm -hmm. let me take it upon myself to educate myself on, you know, better ways that I can be inclusive or, you know, just so I can make sure that I'm educated on everything so that I can come off the right way. Um, And I, I don't like when people feel that they have to step on eggshells. So (laughs) it is, I think I've groomed myself in a way where people don't feel that way to approach me. Um, I'm very approachable, personable, and I like that people have that comfortability, not even just my coworkers, my student athletes, you know, they ask questions, whether anything, (laughs) 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 we have those conversations and, um, it's just like, I value that there, we had that open rapport and I want to continue to have these open conversations. And, you know, we've had conversations before everything that's going on in the mm-hmm. world. Um, so I think this is really the catalyst to kind of push things forward and really work on that diversity and inclusivity with everyone um, to kind of eradicate everything from the past. Uh, we obviously know that not everything is gonna just go smoothly but having those conversations asking those questions that's important and to have someone to do that I respect that and it shows that you're recognizing your privilege and you know it's not something that's easily understandable as you said um but to realize both views of everything um kind of just starts the process so one of the questions was, you know, practical steps um, for people, especially those with privilege to kind of increase inclusion um, and kind of just from what you were saying, part of that sounds like it's just ha- having, being willing to have those honest conversations yes. and address it and bring it forward. Because I think, as I mentioned in the last one for me, it was, you know, I was, you know, if, 
you're a good person and you like to work hard and we like to get things done, we're going to be great. Like it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what your preferences are. Um, if you're a jerk, I mean, you could look exactly like me. We're, we're not going to get along. And I thought that was potentially enough and have been abundantly clear that it is most likely not if it's going to actually get better. And especially in a role where I do have not, I don't want to, I don't have power by means, but like, I could potentially get to hire people and I get to, you know, look at these different things and the importance of that and having those conversations. Um, so that's again, me rambling, but, um, what other or more practical or things that potentially me can do, could do that you have seen. Um, and I have a feeling that'll apply across a lot of areas. Yes. Um, honestly, I think, as you said, you know, as a human, as you meet people and if they're good people, then, you know, you don't think about their race or, you know, their background or whatever. That's good. You know, most people don't think that way. But um, just to really have those conversations and, you know, I, one of my favorite quotes is from Stephen Covey and he says, you know, we listen with the intent to reply versus listen with the intent to understand. So if we all listen to each other to understand, then I think that kind of can be something practical that we can all work on. Um, if I understand you, then I'm understanding your background. Maybe I can get to know you as a person and your why. And that just kind of makes that inclusive, inclusive environment there. Um, I don't want you know, white people to just say, okay, I listen, I understand, but do you really understand? How do you want to move forward? Um, what are ways that you think you can help me to provide an inclusive environment? Um, how can we better work on diversity? Um, you know, what steps are you taking to make things better? Sure. Um, you know, honestly, like I say, it starts from recognizing privilege and understanding it and understanding people. Um, you know, we could walk down the street together and I'm viewed one way because I am a black woman and you're just seen as, Oh yeah, that's Joel. You know, he's a regular Joe Schmo, whatever. Whereas somebody is potentially going to have some sort of stereotype and prejudice against me um, sure. without even knowing me. So right. I think a lot of it comes from listening to others, understanding others, and just recognizing that there was a problem and now we're actively moving to understand and be better. Well said. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and that's, that's something I've come back, you know, the, the listening I think is so important and I've tried, I've kind of thought it, and this is playing with words, but I think words are important, obviously, with this is, you know, I don't think most people in a privilege will ever completely or even closely understand because you just can't, like, it's just, it's just not possible. And that's not to downplay it, but to just try and, I like the word comprehend to some degree where you can at least try and remove out of your own position to then see potentially what else is going on and why that might be a problem and you know why people might react the way they do because we can't i can't put myself in your shoes because it's just nothing i've ever dealt with and probably never will mm -hmm. um i saw one thing the other day so like unless you've had a supreme court decision decide what you can and cannot do if you've never had that you are from a privileged setup and i am most definitely sitting in that, in that world. And I just, I thought that was kind of interesting when you look at that and how things are in the world in our kind that of. That is a, a great point. I didn't think about it that way, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Just yeah. It is really just kind of eye opening like one of those like, Oh, I'm going to sit with that for a second. That one, that one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Anything else? No, I don't want to bypass this topic by any means, but I, I do. I'm looking forward to the PhD DAT talk, but I did want to make sure that we, if there's anything else in this realm um, that you wanted to cover before we kind of transition, um, that we do cover that. I think that's it. 
think it's just very important to educate yourself, um, whether that's, you know, discussions like this or, you know, just going to someone and having those open conversations or reading a book and understanding Black history. Um, I think since it's not taught equally in the educational system, then a lot of people, mainly white people, just don't understand why Black people are conducting ourselves in certain ways. Um, I will say I was very fortunate to have Black educators in my formative years. So we learned Black history. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of that is not necessarily who I am today, but it helps me to understand how things work in America, in the world. Um, so if we could somehow put Black history into education, then I think it will help and put a lot of things into perspective. Um, you know, some people, they only have white teachers, whereas I didn't have, I mean, I had white teachers in K through eight, but I had more black teachers than I had white teachers. And I didn't have all white teachers until I went to high school. And yeah. from K to 12, I went to Catholic school. So it was just I had these educational, you know, opportunities where I could learn these things and I never felt that I was learning anything, you know, passe, but <laughs> it was just like, I also had that, you know, from my family and to have that from my formal learning, I think that was important as well. So if we can just educate ourselves on black history in general, um, finding those resources, I think that may help with a lot of things as well. Uh, that was one I was going to ask you as you got going. Do you have b uh, books specifically that you think are really good? So I, I purchased, and I haven't read it quite yet, but it's next up on my list, on um, White Fragility. But then happened to see as I'm scrolling through Twitter, someone who is a professor in um, black history and just everything around it had advised that that is not a place to necessarily start or stop just because it doesn't get quite as deep into some of the underpinnings now i haven't read it quite yet and right. i've seen some other one and they had other recommendations so i went and those are definitely in the queue now but just didn't know if you had anything specifically that you thought were really powerful um or anything like that i believe one thing that i think would be very eye-opening for you know white people to listen to i don't think it's a book yet but um the podcast i've saw it on Apple's podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure if it's on other platforms, but it's the 1619 podcast. And that okay. was, I actually listened to it. I travel a lot, obviously from, you know, this side of the state to the other side of the state. So I have time to just listen. Um, I was able to listen to the entire podcast. Uh, there's a few episodes, less than 10, I believe. Um, and it was just very eye-opening about, you know, when the slaves were brought to America and then how Black people have progressed through um, everything that's going on in America to a current situation with Black farmers being discriminated against. And that was something that I had no prior knowledge of. And mm -hmm. was like, oh, wow, you know, even down to farming, we have an issue. Um, but that was very beneficial, and I think that's a good place to start. Perfect. And probably, I hope I don't get the name right. I believe it's the Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. I believe it's by Carter Woodson. I'll look it up and link it up. Yeah. Uh, when we put the website out, so those are good places to start, I believe. And I like that it was it's something more current. Um, with the 1619 and it can just shed light on some things. Awesome. Well, moving into the PhD versus DAT, um, as you mentioned, you are just a, hopefully finishing up here in the near future um, with a PhD. Yes. Um, what a, what is your PhD in? Like what is the focus on? Um, and then just kind of be onto that. Um, PhD versus DAT route, you know, what kind of drove you to one to the other and the ultimate goal with it? Okay, so my PhD is in instructional management and leadership. 
Um, and I actually, <clears throat> excuse me, I chose that program because specifically the program at Robert Morris, I feel it was not geared towards educators. Um, and I know personally, I would like to stay in higher education. So being able to find some sort of program that kind of encompass everything was important to me. I didn't have to take, you know, a concentration or specialty in higher education. It was kind of already just built in. Sure. Um, so I thought that was very important because I, you know, started the process of looking for a program. You know, I was, oh, you know, do I get a DAT? Because at the time it was still very fresh and I didn't know a lot about it. So I wanted to educate myself. Um, so looking at a DAT versus a PhD or a second master's or um, an EDD. So that program specifically, I've reached out for information and I felt that from that moment of me reaching out for information through my application process and as a student, I never felt like just a number. Um, they kind of not held my hand, but they, you know, wanted to give me more information, invited me to campus for a campus tour, even though it's a hundred percent online, except for, um, there's the last week in June is usually your summer residency. So mm -hmm. I felt very comfortable with the program and everyone seemed to just really value me as a person where they did. It wasn't just, Oh, we need our numbers and mm -hmm. come on in. So I, that was why I chose the program at Robert Morris. Mm -hmm. um, my end goal is actually to be a collegiate athletic director. So I really felt that the instructional management and leadership program was also a good fit for my end goal. Um, as well as my current athletic director went through the same program. Okay. So <laughs> that was kind of refreshing there, which I yeah. had known. Um, I had obviously known her as a student, but I never knew more about what she studied um, until my application and interview process where they told me, you know, oh, you went to Cal U and she's a RMU grad too. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <It makes sense. laughs> so I was I was really you know happy about that um, and looking at the DAT when I was researching I honestly felt that it was very which you know still to this day I could be wrong but I think it's very clinical based yep. and being as though I don't necessarily see myself in the future retiring clinically so I didn't feel it was the best fit for me um I do see the value in the DAT and I think that it has the potential to align itself with the PhD and the EDD but I just didn't feel it was the right route for me no it makes a lot of sense uh, I'm glad it's picking up steam because I think it's going to help the profession in the long run this could be years out, but just to be able to work autonomously and not be underneath a physician's yes. um, orders, I think the DAT could is going to prove very, very beneficial in that. I definitely agree. So with that, um, in your PhD, and now that your dissertation is, we'll say, basically done, hopefully, <laughs> you're safe, um, what did you do your dissertation on? So, as an athletic trainer, we see a lot of student athletes as well as we see a lot of transfers. So, um, that phenomenon in itself was very intriguing to me. So, I decided, oh, maybe I'll look at, you know, why are student athletes transferring at the rates they're transferring? When I started my program, one of my cohort members was actually associate AD at a division one institution. And he was like, Oh yeah, you know, that's really interesting because we just did something on transfers and transfer rates are up 300%. So I said, wow. So this is something that I need to look into. So talking to the faculty and actually that first residency was the first time that I interacted with my advisor and she was, saying I think it's very broad like she understood what I was saying but she said you know you need to narrow it down 
what they always tell us. So <laughs> in order to narrow it down, I said, all right, let me look at specifically African-American student athletes. Um, as a professional, my one of my passions is student retention. And I noticed that, you know, a lot of students, they'll go to a place and, oh, this really isn't for me, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, and then having a sort of slight student affairs background, I want to know what can an institution do to better serve the students. Um, at the end of the day, we are there because of the students, whether you're athletic training or not. Um, so specifically, my research looks at African-American student athlete retention, and I wanted to make sure that females were included because a lot of the research out there focuses on African-American male student athletes. Um, and that is really further narrowed down to division one. So I didn't want to exclude female student athletes or African-American student athletes, and I didn't want to exclude any division. So um, I was able to reach out to Division two and Division three student athletes. Um, that actually, I did reach out to Division one, but no one answered. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was very interesting because I did offer an incentive for participation. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The participation was a little low, but you know, I'm thankful for the participants that I did have, um, which, you know, I actually, for my dissertation, I took on two theoretical frameworks, which made the situation complex again. Um, so one of my frameworks is critical race theory. And I chose it before even really recognizing that race or and or racism was going to be a part of the situation. And it, it was very prevalent. So um, writing chapter four and chapter five over the past month and a half was uh, not the most fun. Um, just really having everything going on in the outside world and then tying myself into, I took a qualitative route. Um, I'm not really into quantitative. I don't really like numbers. So <laughs> I want to know, I want to understand stats just because I think it sets you apart, but man, does it make it off? Oh. Yeah, mm. I, I got a buddy that is a wizard at it. And I, I have two of them, one more than the other. And we'll get on like a group call and they'll just go. And I just like, I just go blank. Like my eyes cross. I, I just, yeah. <laughs> I, I hear you on that one. <laughs> I'm like, that is not for me. So <laughs> I took the qualitative route. So really, you know, having those interviews and really delving into my data, it was it was very heavy, to say the least. Um, yeah. Just to not myself realizing that these student athletes, current student athletes are – experiencing these things and because they are experiencing some sort of racial issue they're choosing to transfer um on their campuses they're not really feeling included because they don't see any representation um which i guess i knew that but i didn't really realize how it affected them so it was just like <laughs> so I really had to, you know, power through and really get through four and five and tie in, you know, race and how we can move forward. And, you know, this is what the current population is saying will help them to feel like a better inclusive environment. Um, so that is the basis of everything. Um, it's my hope that my research can help some institutions to realize that, you know, they may think they have an inclusive environment, but they sure. actually don't. So it's like, let's take, you know, these few things that were suggested and try to implement them as best we can. Um, not exactly sure how things in general for higher education will pan out after coronavirus. Oh, but man. <laughs> it's just like, uh, you know. Whole other podcast, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, how is this going to move forward? Is this yep. so 
something I just did for nothing. (laughs) You know, I hope that, you know, something can be implemented to promote those inclusive environments and, you know, better make them feel like not just a student athlete, which most of them mention in their interviews. Just, I feel like just a student athlete, I don't feel value as a student. And I was like, what do I preach all the time? You're a student first. And as the, the same token, you're a person first. So that a lot of my passion and drive for my research was, you know, I want to know your why. So, you know, why did you choose this institution? Or, you know, why do you want to be here? What is your angle? And, you know, if we can put that on an institutional level, then I think that will also help to move forward. Are you hoping to publish this once you're all said and done? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm saying, and if not, would you mind sending me a copy? Because I think working no at a Division Three institution, I I just think this would be good. And I, you know, it's it's not a very diverse institution, and our athletic department doesn't represent it any better than really the institution does. I mean, th- there are definitely efforts. It just is not where we anybody would like it to be. So I think anything more to help that understanding, it would be yes. fantastic. So. No problem. I am willing to share with anyone that wants to read all 109 pages so far. So. You know, to be honest with you, sometimes I enjoy reading the dissertations more than the actual articles because the words are spread out more and it just seems easier to digest. I, I read the whole thing. I was like, ooh, man, I, I might know some things. I, might, <laughs> you know, I feel like an expert, which I should, but wow, you know, somebody else can read this in the future and say, wow, you know, let me network with her. She might know some stuff. There you go. So I'm willing to share with anyone that wants to read about it. Kind of as a follow-up to that, you know, you mentioned that your goal is to be um, an athletic director. Mm -hmm. uh, And with that, obviously, there's no requirement to continue research. but is that something you see yourself doing, kind of having gone through this process? Obviously, if you're not going for tenure and different things like that, the, the pressure to get it done is solely on your own. Uh, but is that something you think you would do kind of even in that process of moving forward? Or is it is this a one and done and then you'll kind of... <laughs> well, Joel, I really wanted it to be a one and done, but... <laughs> <laughs> you had too many questions from the from your first study, huh? Now, you know, I, one thing I found of value, which I try to share with everybody that I know, um, embarking on a doctoral journey, um, I try to keep a like doctoral notebook. So anytime I had some sort of question or idea related to my dissertation or research in general, I jotted it down. Um, so I have a few topics already jotted down. Mm-hmm about what to research in the future or something that I would like to research. Um, it really blows my mind at the fact as a student and probably five years ago, if you asked me if I wanted to do research, I would have wholeheartedly said no. Right. Um, but now things have changed and I'm just like, oh wow, I enjoy research. And you know, I didn't feel it was as big a task as I've always viewed it. Um, but I have been told by my mentors that I will, you know, publish again and, you know, oh, you're going to have to do this as a rite of passage. So <laughs> I think it's, it's already there. Yes, I will continue researching. And I would, you know, really like to research within athletic training as well as, you know, retention overall in higher education. Uh, So I think that really shows just, you know, how diverse I'm making myself and my background um, that I'm not just focused on one specific thing. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So many areas you could go into that. It just snowballs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how quickly that happens. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, anything else around the PhD or DAT that you'd like to cover um, before we kind of jump into the AT Chat 5? Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, you have to do your research in terms of 
you have to know what you want to do and how a PhD, EDD, or DAT is going to tie into your end goal. So if it's not going to be beneficial, I would say you don't have to do it. Um, but it's very, very time consuming and self-care is important <laughs> and mental health is also important in your journey. Um, I've been very vocal about, you know, just me embarking on my own mental health journey, not even just from personal reasons, but, you know, I went through a lot mentally for or through my program, just like, is it worth it? Do I need to continue? Um, just a lot of different things. So I've been very transparent about that and, you know, recognizing mental health is important, not even just for, you know, us, for our student athletes, for everybody. Um, yep kind of really breaking, ending the stigma. So just recognizing all those things. And if you feel like you can finish it out and embark on the journey, then it is for you. Definitely. Well, shall we move on to those five questions? Okay. First one is where do you see athletic training going in the next five to 10 years? And if you could just kind of set the example. Um, I think just in the past five to 10 years, we've moved forward in the right direction. Um, and then kind of building off of that foundation for the next five to 10 years, I think moving to the entry level masters for the curriculum was, you know, the right choice being as though if we want to get the respect and um, the recognition that we desire and deserve, then that's what we needed to do. Um, and I also think it will change the dynamic of the student um, because they're not going to be, in my opinion, as young moving forward. Into, you know, once they start out as athletic trainers and, you know, honestly, like I mentioned before, I was burnt out after my program. So, if we can kind of get past that, then I think that's going to be better for our future overall. Um, and I think the programs as a whole moving forward with the curriculum is going to give more reality, if that makes sense, with, you know, critical thinking skills and problem solving skills, which I've noticed have been lacking. Um, in general, not even just with athletic training students, with yeah. the students, the generation. Nobody wants to fail and nobody's let them, so it's hard, right. to, hard to put and yourself out there. It's just like, oh my gosh, like you're, you're going to be leading the future. I, I'm I screwed not sure. up so many times in grad school. Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, um, let's work on some critical thinking and problem solving. Yeah. So I, you know, we're going, we're moving in the right direction, um, as well as we need to somehow work on retention, increasing retention of athletic trainers and decreasing attrition. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from people are just not happy in their positions because sometimes we don't advocate for ourselves. And wholeheartedly. Uh, a lot of times we, you know, we feel that, oh, we're athletic trainers. This is just the status quo. This is what it is when, you know, if you're not advocating for yourself, you're not advocating for our profession. So, you know, I, I tell a lot of people I had one position where I found out that someone that was slightly equal to me was making more than I was. And I went to HR with data from the NATA salary survey, as well as my own data of hours I worked and things I did. And I was met with, oh, well, we can't really do anything for you. So I moved on. Um, and I found a better situation. And yep. I think taking that risk and advocating for not only myself, but my profession, it really showed that, you know, we, we can move forward. So I think if more people can do that and find the confidence to do so, um, it will help us. And I, I think the next set of leaders are going to push that for us. So we will see more of, you know, this is what we deserve and yep. this is what we're going to get. 
um, so I think if we, I kind of feel that maybe you and I are in that in between of mm-hmm. you know young professionals moving into older professionals, actually <laughs> <laughs> young professionals, right? And I'm just like, oh well, I'm not you know not that old. I actually think I'm still young, but sure. you know, I yeah, get your thing. So we could kind of just mentor you know those coming in and just saying you know you have to go through some rough patches <laughs> unfortunately but i think that comes with anything not just athletic training so i think mm-hmm. that we are moving in the right direction so i think the next five to ten years are hopeful um i'm optimistic and i think we are seeing those changes where you know maybe we're not exactly diversifying but that's not the larger issue it's educating as well as you know moving forward we're going to have a woman president so (laughs) i think that's showing there that we are working to be better sure Um, so yeah without getting on too much of a soapbox i i agree with you and i I get into this discussion with a lot of people about, you know, the low paying jobs and the hours required. And I, I'm still confused and nobody's really had a good answer is, you know, the people that are leading those departments, those athletic training departments specifically, you control that. And so like, even, and I'm not at this, I didn't get this realization as much as I needed to tell probably three or four years ago. Um, I've been in my current role as the head AT or whatever you want to title it for this will be year seven but we've got part-time jobs because that's all we can get out of the university and it's really occurred to me that we need to treat those like part-time jobs so those people that do take them yes it sucks I wish it was full-time and if I can do that I would Mm -hmm. but what I can control is not running you into the ground for crap pay and allowing you to go and make extra money in order to at least live comfortably before you find what you want to go and do, which is totally fine. And so as much as people, you know, how are these schools posting these jobs? And like, I get it. Like sometimes that's the best you can do, Mm -hmm. but we can control the hours. And I know some people, and I think it's been right or wrong, or it's up for a conversation of like ingrained of like, you have to be there. We're, we're very, much looking at a model and most likely going to do it we're only going to have six total people on staff for 600 athletes Mm. i am not going to have somebody working 60 hour weeks all year i just won't do it so we're going to set our open times and if your practice occurs during that we will be around if it finishes after we'll be in contact if something dramatic happens yep and i that sucks but (laughs) i'm also not gonna run my staff ragged because of all the home events that we do and you know everything like that and so i think that'll be interesting if we can get people to look at that and you know these intern positions that are now popping up or the fellow positions that are popping up and actually treating them like that and not expecting 60 hours a week for 20 hours worth of pay um yeah from me I I'm a very strong advocate of work-life balance as an athletic trainer and to hear you as a male athletic trainer say that you know you're looking for that balance me as a female I just I have to then worry about you know social things relationships and can I have a family where Mm -hmm. you you can be married and you know you'll have a wife and your wife can take care of the family. Whereas as a female, I, I would not have that balance, but I, you know, advocate for myself and my coworkers and I'm, no, we're not, you know, going to do that. And I think I've been fortunate to have, you know, those head athletic trainers that also state that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the past two years, I've been, oh, you know, I can't be here for everything because I have to work on my own schoolwork. And, you know, my coworkers and my student athletes have been very supportive of that. And I'm very appreciative um, 
that it wasn't, oh, well, we don't care about your schoolwork, so <laughs> you just be here. And, you know, it's very unrealistic to think that anyone can work, you know, 60-hour weeks for low pay. So um, I think if we continue to speak up and speak out, then, you know, we can move forward. And, you know, at the high school level, if you can't afford an athletic trainer, then you can't afford athletics. So, you know, just, oh, we have people on staff. No, I, I don't think you have an athletic trainer on staff. So, you know, you figure out what you can do and maybe you're paying someone per diem to be there for one set of hours and you're not requiring anything else. Um, just because that also assist the burnout in the profession that we have so i wholeheartedly agree with you that <laughs> we can do better and people in positions of you know authority of power can better advocate for us yeah i look at it too you know divisions i think it's specific means something you know if you're in a big division one if there's not a full-time person with every sport that's relatively large what i don't understand it and then i i've enjoyed d3 mm -hmm. um just taking down the pace a little bit the travel's not nearly <laughs> what it was um but even then like if we're going to go and have all of our coaches head coaches be full-time 1.0 for their sport i don't i'm not saying i need a 1.0 athletic trainer for every sport we don't necessarily need that for our, our golf team like we can we can work with them in a but until we can get to a point where that's relatively balanced, where somebody's only working a season or two, because that's the other one I always get is you work two seasons. Yep. So when one coaching staff gets to pump the brakes and throttle down, we don't. Yeah. And I know they have recruiting and things like that. I get it. But I think that gets lost. And trying to bring that to a light is something I've been very, very vocal about to some people's chagrin. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> um, moving on, before I keep talking too much, if you could go back and please set the time frame for this and give yourself some advice as a younger athletic trainer, when would that be and what would you tell yourself? Ooh. Um, I would say, oh man, probably if I can go back. Ooh maybe seven years ago when I was just starting out. Um, just to tell myself that your hard work is not unseen. Um, I kind of just, me as a person, I just throw myself into everything that I embark on. Um, and I just, I did a lot. I wore a lot of hats. At one point I was an athletic trainer at um, a middle school, a high school, filling in and filling in at a university. So I was just like, man, why am I doing this? And <laughs> what is happening? But, you know, at the time, my end goal was to be a collegiate athletic trainer. So I was telling myself, you know, this is going to work out. And eventually yep. it did. So, you know, to just tell myself the hard work is not going unseen and just to keep with it. Um, I think that would be something that probably would have eased my mind for <laughs> a while. I like it. What have you found to be the most influential resource in your career? Hmm. My network, honestly. Um, like I had stated before, uh, when I was a student at Cal, that faculty I felt was, you know, very well known in the athletic training world. Um, and to be able to learn from them, um, to work with them, as well as to then build my network to have them as a resource, I think that has really helped me um, as an athletic trainer. And to kind of keep that same mindset of, you know, networking when I meet a fellow athletic trainer to, you know, talk to them and just, you know, what's your background? Where have you been? Uh, simple things like that to kind of make myself a resource for those in my network. Um, I think that has been the most influential because you, you just never know who you're going to meet and you don't know who they know. And, you know, you can really put yourself in different opportunities, different situations, just because you 
positively networked with someone else. Um, and I, I think my own network has been the best resource for my career. Here, we hear that one quite a bit, which is, I think, honestly, a really good thing. Mm -hmm. If you could go and change or eliminate one thing, it could be a modality, a common practice, a mindset, or whatever else you choose in the field of athletic training, what would it be? I really, I thought about this one. Like, I thought about it. Because I, I have my own pet peeves of various mm -hmm. things. But I think, honestly, something that really bothers me is the fact that the general public views us as athletic trainers as the water boy, the water girl, whatever the case may be. It really bothers me. So I think if we can change the situation to show that we're actually medical professionals and yes, hydration is part of our job. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problem with that. You know, yeah. I, actually, I call myself a hydration specialist, but yeah. I am not the water person. So if we could change that mindset, I also think that would change the way that we are viewed and respected in general. So if, if we could just get rid of that, it would be yeah. a great day for all of us. Um, and I would no longer have that as a pet peeve. Yeah, it's hard when it's like such a small part of our job, but it's one of the more like visible. Yes, yes. You know, especially when you think like NFL mm -hmm. football. You know, yes, the ATs are going out there, but from what I've gathered, is they actually hire people that literally are just there to get water to yes. people. So, and those get confused because you, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, and it's just you know you've got a towel and a water bottle and you can really tell when they just go to the tent but yeah it's not that i think that needs to change because there was towel gate or whatever happened on twitter um with that whole thing like that's not it but it's yeah i, I completely agree with you you know the stuff you don't get to see because it is medical yeah. is such a bigger part of it um like yeah we are we're the utility tool of athletics um and i don't think a lot of people realize that and it's just it, it can be very exhausting to continue sure. to educate that, you know, we have a degree and, you know, some of us or moving forward, we're all going to have a master's degree and, you know, we do this and I'm not just sitting watching sports all day. Like you think, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I had to deal with crisis management and, you know, dealing with, you know, this person might want to come in and talk and I have to be a, you know, confidant, whatever. I, we just do so many things and people don't understand that. <laughs> it's just like, oh, Agreed. okay, so maybe we just do some really big educating, maybe go out into the communities. I don't know, but <laughs> we just, we can be better or yep. we can be seen better. Absolutely. Uh, last one is what does being an athletic trainer mean to you? So being an athletic trainer means to me that I am actually walking in my purpose um, because I've done a lot of soul searching and I believe my purpose in life is to serve others and to be an advocate. advocate. So an athletic trainer encompasses all that for me. Um, I am here to serve my patient population and to advocate for them. Um, and that's something that I really educate my student athletes on, you know, I don't want to see you on the sideline. I'm not just going to take you out of your sport. Um, I'm going to do the best that I can so that you can continue doing your best. And, you know, you'll still have those student athletes that, oh, I don't want to tell Mercedes because then she's going to tell the coach. and. Yep. It's just, it's been a lot of, no, I'm actually here to advocate for you. And in terms of your medical situation, I call the shots, not your coach. So just really letting them know that we are here for them or I am here for them. Um, 
they're understanding that and they know like, no, I, I want you on the field. I don't want you to be sitting on the sidelines with me because I want to pay attention and I have to do my job. But just being an athletic trainer to me means that I am working and walking in my purpose of serving and advocating. I like it. I think that's the first first time we've heard it kind of phrased that way. So that's awesome. I think that'll be really good. Um, anything else you'd like to share? And if not, where can people connect with you if they'd like to? Um, I don't think there's anything else to share. I feel like we covered a lot um, and really delved into some things. But if people want to find me, I am on Twitter. Um, pretty heavy on and um instagram um and my handle is the same for both um and joel can just link it in. i will link those up yep or if you want to be adventurous and follow the hashtag journey to dr Benz, you can find me there um, because i've i've hashtagged my journey on there you go Twitter and on Instagram so I can be found there and I'm on LinkedIn and that is my first and last name yes Mercedes. awesome so if you want to connect there that works for me too perfect well thank you very much for taking the time and no following thank up on everything thank you for having me I, I really enjoyed it <laughs> well that's good to hear we're happy to hear that <laughs> all right thank you no problem